Welcome back to the podcast that inspired the Kansas City Chiefs to make it back to the playoffs this year. We're pretty sure that they're listening to Beethoven walks into a bar in their fancy headphones and all those shots that you see them when they're entering the stadium each week before the game. So, you know, we're happy to play a small role in their success. You're welcome, Kansas City. I'm Jason Sieber, the Kansas City Symphony's associate conductor. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the director of education and community engagement. And I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And uh, you can be sure if uh, my voice was in Patrick Mahomes' ears, he'd be throwing an interception. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's hope that uh, that's not actually the case. But uh, the Kansas City Symphony has started the new year with some incredibly powerful programming, and our upcoming concerts are no exception. In addition to music by Prokofiev, Strauss, and Beethoven, we are excited to perform a new work by rising American composer Joel Thompson. And I'm really excited to hear his new work, To Awaken the Sleeper. It was co-commissioned by the Kansas City Symphony and has already been performed by the Colorado Music Festival and Seattle Symphonies. So Joelle joins us today on the podcast. And uh, I have to say, you guys, I'm a little selfishly looking forward to this chat because... So Jason and I are in the midst of programming and writing curriculum for a new virtual program that we're going to make available to high school students here in Kansas City. It's surrounding the the concept of social justice and social change and how music can can help affect those changes. This project is going to be available to schools in Kansas and Missouri this spring, so spring of 2022. So I'm super excited to pick Joel's brain about his tremendous programming, but also he has some really excellent educational materials available for um, some of these works, and and I'm super excited to dive into that. But before we do that, we'll ease in a little bit. Um, So will you guys please help me welcome composer Joel Thompson to the show? Welcome. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. (laughs) We're, We're so glad to have you on the program today. Um, And as Stephanie said, I can't wait to hear all about what you're up to and your upcoming visit to Kansas City, where we we will be playing the piece that Mike mentioned. But first, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your musical journey. Uh, On our first episode of the season last time, we we got to talk to conductor Joshua Weilerstein. I'm not sure if you know Josh or not, but (laughs) yeah, great, great conductor. And um, he told us that he wanted to be a baseball player or a sports announcer when he was a kid. And that was like his whole dream all the way up through high school. Uh, and our principal trumpet, Julian Kaplan, who's been on the show, said that he thought for sure he was going to be a professional NASCAR driver. So we all come from different starts and have different <laughs> goals and dreams. But somehow we all ended up as musicians. And I know that you entered uh, Emory University as a pre-med student. So obviously your goals when you first entered college were to be a doctor. Uh, Tell us about your journey to becoming a great composer that you are today. (laughs) Wow. Um, (laughs) It's it's been a a long and rather circuitous journey to this point. Um, I don't know about the great part. And I just started calling myself a composer. So (laughs) that's, um, you know, we'll, we'll call you great. It's funny that you mentioned that because I mean, you know, we're learning a little bit about you and and I wondered how you how you identified yourself in the music world because you started as a I mean, you'll talk about it, I'm sure, but you you were conducting um, a choral conducting yeah. student, right? And I wondered like at what point do you start calling yourself a composer? Yeah, I for a long while choral conductor was my musical identity. Um, but before that, I mean, I I was born in the Bahamas to Jamaican parents, and um, I found you know that a lot of my immigrant friends uh, as well have the same sort of predicament in which our destiny is told to us rather than chosen by us, and doctor was that mm-hmm. destiny, um, and I I fully bought into that as well. I did as. I did it for as long as I could, did the pre-med route. My uncle's an OBGYN in Jamaica. I went and shadowed him for a while and um, definitely interested in creating a sense of contributing to healing in some way, whether it's on a personal or social level. And so I think that still manifests in my work today. But um, I fell in deeper and deeper in love with music. Um, first as a pianist, um, I played for my church for the longest and still do when I come back home. Um, and 
uh, started singing in in choirs really at, at Emory um, and then went the choral conducting route uh, and while I was teaching at a small college in South Georgia uh, I wrote Seven Last Words of the Unarmed and that piece was a, a personal uh, a sort of personal project for me uh, but that ended up kicking off this next phase of my career as a composer and um, I'm currently wrapping up studies at Yale um, in my first degree as a composer but my, my doctorate there and um, just started calling myself a composer so um, <laughs> I, there's 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 a number of I've, I've tried to keep the the pluripotence of my musical identity as alive as possible trying to be a composer I, I want to get back to conducting and um, performing as well but so so you mentioned uh, and I I we won't be able to keep ourselves from talking about seven last words of the unarmed because it's incredible. Um, was that the first thing that you wrote? Uh, how how did you get started composing? That that was a sort of opus one. That's the first piece wow. I published. Oh. But um, wow. I I took composition lessons while I was at Emory with uh, Dr. John Anthony Lennon, um, and applied to uh, Brevard and did that after my senior year but then went I went there. to Brevard Brevard is great so much fun yeah I, I studied <laughs> with um, Aldridge and uh, Kevin Putz while he was working on Silent okay, Night cool. actually um, and nice. um, yeah I, I, I did that for a while I um, got a little discouraged afterwards and decided to go the conducting route but kept composing for myself just just to you know, keep that muscle alive, um, and uh, seven last words was the first thing that I ever released to the world. I guess. So I have to say, I I just uh, experienced this piece for the first time, uh, literally this morning, and I, I mean there aren't there just aren't words to describe it really. So we're gonna we're gonna put the link um, to this beautiful video of it in our show notes. Now hearing you say this was the first thing you wrote. It's two things for me. It's it's even more um, impressive in a, in a sense that you just had the the compositional technique and chops to convey what I can only imagine was a very clearly visioned idea of the piece you wanted to create, but also the way you combine so many different cultural elements in the same piece, right? And I would just love for you to talk talk a little bit about that. I mean, what again, you have to go and listen to it, but you know, it combines, you know, what I for lack of a better term would call contemporary, you know, classical um writing with, you know, with gospel, with hip hop, with I mean, it's just it's everything and it it's it's for me it was such a seamless, you know, integration of those things, which is which is really what made it all the more powerful for me. Yeah, I um I, I feel like that work that that work is um, because I never intended for anyone to hear it. It's my most vulnerable, my most honest. Um, I'm not trying to appeal to anyone on a subconscious or conscious level. Um, it's really just me processing um, something that's really important to me and. That's why to this day it's very difficult for me to listen to, um, mm. because it's. I've told. I've, I've said before. It's like someone reading my diary entry out loud on stage, um, mm. because I wrote it in that same spirit, um, and so all of the things that I love. Um, I just finished a master's in choral conducting, so you know there's a bunch of Lomarme masses, and so Lomarme is in there, um, in sort of ironic. Um, juxtaposition to the fact that all of the men whose words I use are unarmed um, and the tune is about the armed man must be feared um, and you know I, I arranged a spiritual for my um, my master's recital and there's elements of the African-American spiritual tradition in some of the movements I love Bach there's fugues <laughs> um, so you know, it's it's it represents everything that I love and, and listen to um, in music, uh, and I'm processing some very strong emotions. And 
before writing the piece, I was very depressed. And after writing the piece, I felt relieved and sort of alleviated from all of that. And so the, the process of composition for me was uh, a healing thing for me. And it's been so surreal to see the piece have a life outside of myself that's providing hopefully healing for others as well. Um, just to see these very strong emotions represented on classical music stages. Um, yeah, I think it's a very powerful thing. So I think um, just for our listeners who haven't yet heard it, and again, I mean, Mike is right. You, you have to you have to hear it. It's, it's something um, I think everybody should hear. And honestly, when I first heard it, I listened to it. I cried a lot of the way through it. And then I turned to my office mates who there are about there are six of us in in a room and I emailed them all a link and I said you guys have to you have to listen to this like stop what you're doing and listen to it and um and they had very similar reactions so I, it's it's something I, I think everybody needs to hear but if you haven't yet um you took the last words of seven unarmed black men um who were killed by police or other authority figures. And uh, those men were Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, Kenneth Chamberlain, Amadou Diallo, did I say that right? Yeah, and John Crawford. Um, so just just for, I think, context too, to know what we're talking about for anyone listening and kind of going into it, it's worth knowing and checking it out for sure. Yeah, I think uh, one of the other things that was so striking to me about it is, is um, you know, it was written in 2014, 2015. Is that right? Yeah. So, so not, you know, not that long ago, but a lot has happened since then. Um, and especially after, um, you know, the events of summer before last, there were, you know, there were numerous um, musical and artistic expressions, uh, it, you know, from, from every corner of the earth uh, reflecting upon, you know, what we've come to call social justice movement, which I've always thought it's a little bit funny that we talk about it as if it's a new thing. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. And, and, and tragically, um, tragically, so, so many more of those uh, horrific shootings have, have happened. Um, since you wrote that piece and and for me i think um that made it in so many ways you know maybe even more powerful than if i had experienced it you know when it was when it was new in 2014 or 2015 anyway our our whole conversation doesn't need to be about this but it's just such an incredibly powerful work you know i want to encourage everyone to to experience it um and and to hear you say it was the first thing you created is is um well it it, it freezes me, honestly. <laughs> and Joelle, I believe you wrote it after um, Eric Garner and Michael Brown's deaths and then kind of put it away, correct? You, as you said, yeah. you kind of wrote it for yourself more than anything. What was it that prompted you to bring it to p the rest of our attention uh, a few years later? Yeah. Um, so the, the Staten Island Grand Jury they made their decision not to indict the officer who killed Eric Garner in November of 2014. I had just mm -hmm. finished a semester teaching in South Georgia, and so I wrote it in my winter break. And so it sort of, I wrote, started in 2014 and finished in 2015 in that sort of two and a half week period. Um, and Freddie Gray died in Baltimore the following April. Um, and I felt myself in need of the same sort of catharsis that the, the composition process gave me. But rather than, you know, writing another thing in response to that, um, I figured I'm a conductor. Let me put a call out on Facebook, see if anyone wants to read this thing that I wrote last winter. Um, and people responded. I rented a room on my alma mater's campus and uh, people came. Mm connected to other choral communities in the city. And one of them afterwards said, can I call Dr. Rogers at the University of Michigan? He needs to see the score, put us in contact. And then he premiered the piece in November of 2015. So the thing that led me to 
revisit it and attempt to sort of bring it to life was another death and the the this the hardest part of that piece for me there are a number of tragic parts for me when i'm listening to it but it's when the opening comes back again at the end of the eric garner yeah. movement i see that as a sense of this is going to keep happening and it has um and i'm not i've been asked many times by well-intentioned people if i'm going to add a sequel or do one for black women and it's i'm sort of done yeah. <laughs> um I'd rather the thing that's prompting me to write stop um, rather than me having to continue to address it in my craft. So, yeah, I, I hope I, <laughs> at the same time, you know, um, I feel like a lot of, a lot of black composers, black creatives in general are grappling with the same issue. There's a friction right now between bearing witness to what is happening in our country and our society and looking forward to the future with hope um, and not wanting to dwell on our present. But there are active, <laughs> there are active campaigns against us bearing witness. There are, you know, groups of people saying, we don't want you to talk about Ruby Bridges or Martin Luther King in school because our children will feel bad about their history or who they are. And so then there's an onus on us as black artists to say, okay, well, if you're not gonna tell children that Ruby Bridges desegregated her New Orleans school in 1960 um, and grown white people were calling her the N-word as she was walking in, then I guess we're going to have to create art that will show you who we are so that we can then start the healing um, or taking the knife out of the back, like Malcolm X said. So, um, yeah, there's a friction between those two paths, I guess we can take. And um, I feel like To Awaken the Sleeper sort of leans on James Baldwin um, as one who bears witness, um, but still somehow, in his words, captures a sense of hope in the sort of experiment that is the democracy, <laughs> democracy, um, air quotes, of, of the United States of America. And so um, I can see my, my own sort of philosophical and compositional development from Seven Last Words of the Unarmed to now this piece um, with Kansas City. So yeah, we'll see where we go from here. Yeah, well... <laughs> Well, let's let's talk a little bit about it too. Uh, so you're you're actually joining us here in Kansas City um, to uh, for the symphony's premiere of this piece. Um, yeah. So we said at the beginning, so it was co-commissioned by the symphony uh, here in Kansas City, but the Colorado Music Festival and Peter Ungen, who was a guest on our podcast uh, last season. Oh, wow. um, yeah, uh, he they premiered it. Uh, was it this past summer that they, pre yes, they premiered it? Yes, in August. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I read that Seattle also has done it. Has anyone else performed the piece? Uh, not yet. Not that I know. I think okay. this will be the, the next performance. Awesome. And we're thrilled to have you join us as well, not just yeah. uh, to be here. To uh, We always love when co uh, composers attend events for newly created pieces um but you are not just there as the composer you're you're there i'm, I'm not going to say narrator and we might need to have a discussion over what the difference between a narrator and an orator, orator is yes <laughs> <laughs> um but you're going to be orating uh <laughs> to awaken the sleeper as well and i know jason's excited to have you here because i know he's serving as backup while you're not here so <laughs> yeah joel can't be in town until the performances so i'm i'm going to fill in as best i can in the rehearsals and then luckily for the orchestra's sake and the audience's sake joel will really bring the piece to life then when he orates the performances it'll be incredible but i mean you are using these powerful words of James Baldwin. And I think it's, as you started to say, um, with the new music you're trying to create now, not just reflecting on what has happened, but talking about the future and where we go from here and giving some sense of hope. And you even write a hymn of hope yeah. near the end of this piece that I think really is a powerful statement and, and 
um, out of the chaos and insurrection that you mark at the beginning comes this beautiful hope for democracy and for equality and for humanity. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about kind of the way the piece is laid out in that arc as we go from the chaos at the beginning to this hope at the end. Yeah, um, as, as you can probably tell by the chaos and insurrection tempo marking, um, I was responding to events from early last year, almost a year from mm -hmm. now, um, uh, and how sort of despondent that made me feel. Um, and I, I really turned to James Baldwin's words, not only in that moment, but also the year prior, you know, the death of George Floyd and a lot of the, 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 the centering of voices started happening um, centering of marginalized voices started happening in that in the wake of that tragedy um, and wanting to know what Baldwin would have said in response to this moment um, and Baldwin was a sort of clarion call um, through all of the fog of the divisiveness and all of that that existed in the last few years for me and so the piece starts with that chaos with that fog um, with patriotic tunes that are against each other uh, and then the horns cut through representing for me um, what Baldwin has you know represented for me um, that a sort of light that can help me see through it all uh, and then the the orator um, starts speaking his words um, he wrote a letter to um, an open letter to my sister, uh, Miss Angela Davis. That's the name of the the document, um, and he says in it, "We cannot awaken the sleeper, and God knows we've tried." Um, and this idea of, as black artists, um, we want to to speak the truth, not only just to speak it, but to create some sense of change. And here, Baldwin is reminding me that some people are asleep and <laughs> there's not much that we can really do to, to wake them up to the reality that we live um, as black Americans. Um, but at the same time, he says we cannot awaken the sleeper. And then you look at everything else he's written and he's trying to awake the sleeper. Mm. Uh, and so that's the trajectory of the piece. It starts with that statement, but um, moving to some of his statements from No Name in the Street, um, where he asks us to look at our democracy, look at the um, unprotected members of our society, uh, and really look at our sense of justice. Um, uh, and it ends with one of the last speeches that he gave in a 1986 press club um, meeting, um, where he talks about what is at stake and what we need to move forward and how it's reliant on everyone in our country really ridding ourselves of um, a vocabulary, a mindset, um, the sort of mental and social shackles uh, that are sort of tying us to look at each other and disregard each other and, and each other's humanity. and. Um, yeah, and then at the end, I try to <laughs> awaken the sleeper. <laughs> um, so I mean, that's it's it's a really, I for for me, I don't know. Um, the the arc, the emotional trajectory of the piece is for me designed to awaken within myself uh, the desire to keep going, uh, the desire to keep my eye on the prize, um, and. And keep moving forward in belief in this in this country and that's hard sometimes <laughs> um, given all of the bad news that we see from day to day but i'm hoping that um, it can provide that same sense of awakening for, for listeners so um one of the things that's interesting for me to hear you uh speak about your music um it resonates for me with a, a, another conversation not that we had but that um, our music director had, oh, about a year ago, I think, um, with Jesse Montgomery. And the orchestra played her work, I think it's just called Anthem, is that right? Banner. Banner, not Banner. Anthem. Sorry, Banner, Banner thank you. Um, anyway, it's a it's an 
exploration of of many of these same you know ideas that you're raising and and I think it's very much a part of what you're talking about you know how black artists are are responding to the events that are happening right now and to the the history that is that seems to keep happening over now you know centuries of trying to awaken sleepers um <laughs> and I think you know one of the positive things hopefully positive things that has come out of this is that is that orchestras specifically I think are taking in a new way a hard look at at how we are can be more inclusive more thoughtful and be perhaps better awakeners awake ease <laughs> ourselves um <laughs> So uh, I, I'm curious, in the context of all of that, for for you to talk a little bit about how you see, um, you know, this world of quote unquote classical music, which is which has been, you know, for better or worse, a primarily white tradition over its history. You know, how how do we not only come to um, include, you know, voices of of all people, but also, you know reach and include you know the listeners of of all people and how do how do we actually i mean i think there's an assumption that i don't like sometimes uh in classical music which is that you know oh we have to work harder at delivering our thing to more people because we just assume they want it and it's a good thing you know and i find that a little a little patronizing but it's it's not a clear thing always for me you know when we're being patronizing, when we're being truly inclusive. So I, I'd love for you to just, I mean, I threw kind of a, you know, spaghetti meatball <laughs> of ideas at you because it's... 20 it, questions. It, it, you know, it's a complex <laughs> topic, but it's something that, that I care deeply about, you know, as as we sort of re-examine, you know, our artistic history in a new context. I think, I, I think it's an important thing, and I'm just curious for you to reflect on that a little bit as well. Yeah, that's... I'm thinking about that constantly. Um, uh, I guess we, there, are, there have been so many people within our field that have said this is some sort of universal, there's some sort of universal truths that are held within this idiom. I don't think it's any more universal than jazz or pop or rock or any other genre. Mm -hmm. But um, this, I think there are ideas within the canon and the repertoire itself that we have conveniently ignored. I mean, even the namesake of this podcast, I'll mention Verde Bruden, you know, like all men are brothers in, in, in Symphony Nine. And there, there's this idea of, you know, we can, we can all be united. This is all, this is throughout the, the canon. And yet somehow we fail to put that theory in action. I feel, especially in America, we have an opportunity to have to, to redefine what the genre is for our society, for our culture. I feel like Dvorak was hinting at that many, many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we've only now awakened to that in 2020. Um, I feel that the African-American spiritual is American classical music. It's American early music, just as much as mm -hmm. Bach <laughs> or, or, you know, Monteverdi or even earlier. So... If we center American music making, um, I feel like we can actually get closer to what American classical music actually is. And then I have a feeling that the audiences that we see in attendance will diversify. If we are going to center the early music and classical music of Western Europe, we will see a reflection of that in our audience. But if we acknowledge that the music of indigenous and African-American cultures and Appalachian cultures is a part of who we are as a country, um, as a society, as a culture, and have that centered in the concert hall, I think we would, we would see, I mean, that's just my, <laughs> my thought. Sure. Um, I think Nina Simone is classical music. <laughs> my dissertation is on her concert at Carnegie Hall um, in 1964, where she premiered Mississippi Goddamn. Nice. Um, uh, and that's, I mean, I, it's, she's a genius. <laughs> and I, I am in awe of her talent. Um, 
I, you know, I wish she were still alive so I could ask her a bunch of questions, but just even the way she laid out a concert, <laughs> um, I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And she had messages to, to share to specific audiences and she did it in the best way that she could. Um, yeah, I'm sort of rambling now like I did for the other all the other questions so far, but <laughs> I, I have so many thoughts as it pertains to this particular issue of, you know, diversity as it relates and, and inclusion as it relates to our field. At the same time, I, I must say, though, that we are in danger of reverting to the way it's always been. Um, I think, you know, thinking sort of scientifically, um, you know, we had a system that was in a certain stasis in which the marginalized were marginalized and the centered were centered and then all of a sudden we were seeing these statements saying that we're going to flip it and all of a sudden Jesse and I and a bunch of other black composers are getting calls and we are now centered and people who had normally been centered are now on the margins and I think we are all uncomfortable <laughs> because we're in a place where we're not used to being and just it's a matter of homeostasis we will revert back to the way things are but I feel like we in order to get to a balanced place where there's actual equity where all of the voices in our culture are being represented um, we have to get used to this discomfort um, there have been you know white male composers that have complained to me that I'm not getting my music played anymore. It's like, well, welcome to yeah. <laughs> to reality for all women and all people who are not white men. I mean, you know, they, it's it's such a complicated topic. But sure. I I have a f feeling though that um, if if we can embrace the the discomfort of growing pains, we can actually get somewhere that we can be proud of and that can represent our culture and our our society um, in this genre, in this idiom. Um, I, I have to have hope in it because if I, if I despair, um, I don't write. So I have to <laughs> stay rooted in hope because it's the wellspring of my creativity. So I wanted to go back a little bit to uh, something you mentioned when we were talking about the seven last words and, and you writing it as a kind of a, a step toward healing for yourself. And I think you know, knowing that we look at it in a different way, but kind of on the outside, if you're looking at it, it's, oh, he must have written this to, you know, as sort of as a healing uh, thing for for us, for the, for the for the community and for the audience. But knowing that you did it for yourself, I think kind of changes how we all should view it. But I wonder, um, and I always try and look at look at things just in my role as a as an educator, um, but also as a parent in how children are, are experiencing things and, and how, um, how kids can use this art to learn things and communicate things and, and share things. And I wonder if you as an educator and, and, and a composer ever use this idea of, of creating and composition and art in general as a source of healing for students. Um, it's something that, that I'm actually looking ahead to in this activity, uh, this production that, that Jason and I are working on for middle and high school students here in Kansas City and, and using composition and using art um, through you know lots of different composers. We will definitely be including your work as well in a lot of examples just as, as a source of expression. So letting, letting students use art and music to express um, pain or um, anxiety. And I wonder if you've, you've incorporated that in your teachings as well. Yes, definitely. As an educator, I, I definitely did use music to facilitate those conversations. Um, it, in my experience with Seven Last Words, I realized that the music, just recognizing and, and honoring the transformative power of music to really tear down the walls, the barriers that we keep between ourselves, it really allows us to see each other. And once those walls are down, then we can have a conversation. And I just use that feature of music um, to facilitate conversations um, with my high school students. Um, and we had 
some difficult conversations. At the time I taught at the least diverse private school in Atlanta, um, I was probably one of the only um, black authority figures they probably would ever encounter in their life up to that point. And, you know, these things that I had written about were still happening. Um, and they were talking about it. Even if adults didn't want to talk about it or facilitate those conversations, they were talking about it. And I figured, you know, a choir is inherently a community. It's a musical community. So if there is something that our community is concerned about, why don't we talk about it? And um, I took the third movement of Seven Last Words of the um, Amadou Diallo's last words, Mom, I'm going to college. And since I was teaching at a high school, it was particularly relevant for a lot of them. Um, and uh, arranged it for SATP choir. Um, and introduced the whole concept. I got approval from my fine arts coordinator, so it was okay. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> you know, we, we just learned the music. Um, and we had to talk about the whole context. and that then opened up an avenue for them to talk about their present moment. Amadou Diallo was killed in 99 um, when I first moved to the United States. Um, and they were talking about things that were happening in 2016. And yeah, we had frank conversations. <laughs> Some of them were, you know, talking about people that they know doing very uh, <laughs> discriminatory things. Um, and talking about how these issues manifest in their own life and some of the anxieties and, and worries that they carry as they move through the world. And, you know, um, they were able to see each other and see me a little bit more clearly as a result of that experience. And I feel like in the, the conversations are what change. I don't possess the hubris to think that musical notes that I write on a page, <laughs> little dots on a page can actually change lives. and. and and, and change perspectives, but the conversations that we have as a result of interacting with that art form can. Um, and I also wrote, um, I wrote a little hymn, it was an Episcopal school, so I wrote a little hymn um, <laughs> called Draw Us Near um, in response to Philando Castile and Alton Sterling died within two weeks of each other, one in Minnesota, one in Louisiana. and. Um, it was a hymn for my, I was humming the tune to myself, but I also wanted to teach them intervals and being in harmony with, with each other. So I was accomplishing multiple educational goals sure. um, and facilitating conversations with my eighth grade chorus and my high school chorus as well. So I've definitely used music as a way to facilitate you know, conversations. There's a way to do it, especially with high school students um, that, makes, that centers respect the dignity of everyone in the room and the sort of rules, I guess, for lack of a better word, by which we can have difficult conversations and, and leave relatively unscathed. Um, so I've definitely, I definitely advocate for that um, use of music. I love that idea of, of using music just as a starter to conversation too, because I, I think you're absolutely right. And that actually brings me then to, obviously I have a big focus on students, but you know, the, that's not the only conversation we have to have. In fact, that's, you know, like probably like the smallest part of the conversation that needs to be had, right? But I, I mean, even when, so I, I went to the University of Michigan, so I'm especially proud that that <laughs> the Glee Club there um, premiered Seven Last Words. But I mean, as I understand it, it was even difficult for them to get approval to premiere it or to perform it because it required that difficult conversations be had and uncomfortable conversations be had. And that wasn't just with the students who were likely primarily white students, but, you know, in among university and among, you know, the surrounding public. And I think that's all the more reason that it's, that music like this exists because it requires conversation to accompany it and, and we're all afraid to talk about stuff and address stuff and yeah yeah I, I agree it, yeah it conversations need to be had and I think um, music is just one way of facilitating 
those moments. Um, I, I also feel that there's something though about a choir and I, and I talk to members of the Glee Club and also choirs that I'm a member of and there's something really vulnerable uh, about participating in a choir. Um, if, if you're having a bad day, it affects your instrument, you know? Like it's Ooh. so attached, you're, you're, you are your instrument. Um, and uh, if one member of a section is affected, you can, you can tell. Um, and when you're, I don't know, there's, it's, it's such a vulnerable art form. And it, I think there's something about um, the choral medium that lends itself to this because it, it, a rehearsal for me, a choral rehearsal is one of those rare moments. I mean, even orchestral rehearsal is one of these rare moments in which everyone in this room of various backgrounds, different genders, different identities, different political persuasions is in pursuit of beauty, in pursuit of truth and beauty for this one spectacular moment. We are trying to make something together and that's so, so healing right now, <laughs> where we, we listen, we watch our own channels, we read our own books, we listen to our own pundits, um, and we are never holding hands and making beauty. And there's something about making music with other people, whether in a choir or an orchestra, that I feel we are enacting the truth that we are seeking. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I don't need to talk about that. You're all musicians, you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's another element too, a sort of like meta element that lends itself to social justice or whatever. But for me, it's just, can we see each other? Can we hold space for each other? Can we carry each other's stories? Can we build trust between each other and our various communities? I think music can help us do that, and I'm sort of committed to making music that can help facilitate conversations that make that happen. You know, when you mentioned that as, as, as singers in a choir, you know, the kind of day you're having affects how you sing, you just reminded me of a story of when I was a student in high school and was singing in the Allstate Chorus of Pennsylvania, and we had a great couple days making music, the group sounded wonderful, um, and we got to the morning of our dress rehearsal, and it was our only rehearsal in the performance space. And Tamara Brooks was our director from the New England Conservatory of Music. And the night before our dress rehearsal was the night of the Rodney King beating. And she came to rehearsal that morning, and none of us were following the news because, you know, we were high school kids on a trip having fun. And she started the whole rehearsal by telling us what had happened. And she said, I don't care about the performance today. You guys sound great. It's going to be wonderful. We need to talk. And she just opened up the floor. And for the next you know, hour, hour and a half, we just had a conversation. And she was bold enough to allow that to happen. And she knew how important it was that that needed to happen. And uh, the performance that day was incredible because we were all so moved by this building of community and conversation that we had had together. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional talking about it, but uh, it was one of the most incredible musical experiences of my life that day. So I think it's cool that, you know, art imitates life, but sometimes life imitates art too. And that was like a perfect example that day of like everything just feeling like a community and, and feeling that, um, there are, there are so many important things in this world that as artists we need to address. And then there are so many ways that hopefully by addressing them through the art that we do make change and we do uh, inspire the next generations of people to be better than us. So just wanted to share that story. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing yeah. that, for sure. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Well, Joel, th this was just an incredible conversation, and you leave me um, very hopeful, actually. You know, I think one of the challenges uh, for me in in all of this, beyond the, the element of race, 
is simply that I think oftentimes new music doesn't speak to people in a way that they understand that they take something away from. And, you know, your music and the music of, of many of the other uh, incredible black composers who are, who are responding to this moment are writing not only beautiful music, but visceral music and music um, whose, whose um, you know, inspiration and meaning is, is unmistakable. Uh, and I think, I think for me that that's what I would wish, you know, from all composers. And I think music should just be music. You know, we don't need to call it classical or jazz or pop or whatever. You know, it's just the, the music that we play um, should have that kind of visceral impact on people and hopefully transform them uh, no matter who wrote it or who played it. Um, and that, you know, that's my hope. And I think that's how you know, our art uh, continues to have a future. So I think your contribution to that is is immeasurable. And I'm so appreciative um, to have had the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Absolutely. Um, but we do have some really important other matters to attend to, um, <laughs> which are perhaps less heady, but <laughs> but uh, still... Well, it depends on what his answer it is. It depends on what your answer is. But Actually, yeah. Because if his answer is <laughs> beer, it's going to be essential. <laughs> so uh, our, our dedicated listeners will know that we ask all of our guests to very important questions uh, directly related to the title of this podcast. So uh, number one is if you would happen to find yourself in a uh, establishment that sells beverages uh, with one Mr. Ludwig (laughs) von Beethoven, um, what, what might you ask Beethoven if you could ask him one question and, and what would your beverage of choice be to, uh, enjoy with Beethoven while you're speaking with him, either alcoholic, non-alcoholic, water, anything. <laughs> um, well, my, my birthday is December 17. And for a while, um, everyone said that was Beethoven's birthday. But then I remember there was research that that was actually his baptismal date and that he was actually born the day before. So I think Beethoven and I would probably be clearing that up, ah. that he was actually <laughs> born on December 17, you know, just <laughs> I like what it. is your Making actual birthday? That is a new question that we have not yet had. I love it. I like That's that. great. <laughs> uh, I, I would introduce him to my favorite uh, Jamaican soft drink, Ting. It's this grapefruit <gasps> soda. I love Ting. It's yeah. so good, and you can you best. can barely find it in the U.S. Like you have to go to specialty places. I had it in St. Kitts when I was a kid, and I am obsessed with Ting. Yeah, it's. I think it would <laughs> blow Ludwig's mind. I'm sorry. I, I just nice. got so excited about Ting, and my family <laughs> is going to listen to this, and my family is going to go nuts too because it was everyone's favorite soda. <laughs> I was in Jamaica yep. like six months ago. I missed out on the Ting. I didn't know. Oh my God. I feel like the whole trip was wasted now. Like, what would you say is the closest thing to Ting here in the U.S.? Would it be Squirt? (sighs) Squirt. Wow. And maybe the thing, though, is that Ting is made with real sugar. Uh, Right. You know, there's lots of sugar cane in Jamaica. We're not using any high fructose corn syrup in any of our sweeteners. So, like, there's no way to really compare the flavors with anything that's present here. But so Ting is where it's at. Wow. I'm so excited. I'm going to have to like right. see if I can get online and order me out. some ting. I'm going back. <laughs> Are there multiple flavors or is it just one flavor? It's one grapefruit flavor ting. Okay. So good. Okay. And, it, and you right. get it in a glass bottle too. And that's like where it's the best is when it comes out of that's the glass bottle. Soda Man. always tastes better when it's in a glass bottle. Well, Coke is the same way. That's true. Yeah. Uh, hey, Joelle, since, uh, since you mentioned earlier that you would love if, if Nina Simone was was around and you could ask ask her questions what what would some of those questions be then we were asking about beethoven but let's make it equitable here (laughs) nina simone oh so many so (laughs) i i guess i the reason i the reason i am obsessed with nina simone is that she's an example of a black artist during a time of 
social upheaval as it relates to race, you know, the black freedom movement of the 60s, that had a predominantly white audience, mm -hmm. sort of mm. heterogeneous audience. Um, and she chose to speak her truth in 1964 with Mississippi Goddamn and then started this whole wave of civil rights, young, gifted, and black in memory of Lorraine Hansberry and all of that. And she, at one point later in the 80s, said that the biggest mistake of her career was singing in Mississippi Goddamn. <laughs> but then, uh, but it obviously did something for her image and her sort of identity as a civil rights icon in a musical way during that time. I think I would want to ask her about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm also a music maker at a time of social upheaval as it relates to race. And I'm, as a classical musician, communicating with a predominantly white audience. And I feel like there are a lot of lessons to learn from how she sort of, you know, presented herself in, in the spaces that she made music in. And to hear a statement of regret about being vulnerable um, in that way, later on in the career, I would, we'd be talking about <laughs> some of the, the, the ins and outs and nuances of, of that. She was definitely in a different space than, than me when it comes to music making, but I think the similarities, nevertheless, there would be a lot for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, we, uh, you know, we used to always end our podcasts with a little recommended listening. And uh, we kind of got away from it a little bit just to mix things up. But, um, you know, after today's discussion, uh, I would love if you have, if you have any, we talked about seven last words, but um, do you have any uh, recommended listening uh, to suggest to our to our loyal listeners, could be your own work, somebody else's work, could be Nina Simone, could be Nina Simone, could be anything. <laughs> Nina Simone. But we'd love to introduce <laughs> our Simone. listeners to new uh, to new music. Yeah, uh, Nina Simone, uh -huh. Esperanza Spalding, Janelle Monae, um, Jesse Montgomery, Jasmine Barnes, Carlos Simon, Dave Raglan, Damian Jeter. Who else? <laughs> um, that should keep everyone busy till clear the, next the weekend. Comes out. That's, good. That's a good list. That's a, that good, list. a good list. Yeah, Sean Okpabolo. Um, ah. yeah, up in and Wheaton. Um, nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Joelle, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation, and we cannot wait until you are here in Kansas City uh, to be the orator of your very own piece to awaken the sleeper. And we highly suggest that everyone come see these performances with the Kansas City Symphony. They're going to be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, January 28th through the 30th. For tickets, you can go to our website, kcsymphony.org, or call our box office. You're not going to want to miss this incredibly powerful new work by Mr. Joel Thompson. Thanks again for joining us, Joel. Thank you, Joel. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we chat off the podium with maestro Eduardo Strasser, who joins us all the way from Berlin in advance of his week here with the Kansas City Symphony. And who knows, maybe we'll change things up and do the interview in one or more of the eight languages he's fluent in. Spoiler alert, we will stick with English. Also, seeing as we're about to perform Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony, we just did Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, and we have a top five theme song to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, we are exploring the top five best fifth symphonies of all time. All this and more next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.